The scripture this morning is Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. But before I read this, I need some help. Okay. There's There's a name here that I'm not sure how to pronounce. And Pastor keeps telling us that there's a a website where you can go to pronounce the names. And I looked at about three of those websites and none of them had this. It's it's in verse three, Gibeath Hayraloth. Okay. Is that it? Sounds great. I didn't look it up. I don't know. All right. Well done, Dean. (laughs) So we'll go with that. Now, so we'll, we'll start chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan... Oh, sorry. Could everybody please stand? Thank you. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the east coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over... Their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Hareloth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt... All the men of military age died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that had come out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us. A land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. After. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And that's easier to pronounce. (laughs) On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while the camp at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna had stopped, or the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan, the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dean. Kind of a mixed bag in this chapter, isn't there? 
Um, have you ever had a, a plan for something only to have that plan change in an unexpected way? You kind of have things all lined out and then boo, it takes a right or left turn. And My first uh, teaching job um, was in the middle school. I taught life science. And I started uh, late in the year. I started in October um, because the, the teacher that had historically taught life science at this school, had some sort of illness, I don't remember what it was, and they, they kind of held off hiring someone to take his place because they thought he'd be able to return that year, and by the time October rolled around, they realized that that wasn't going to happen, and they hired me to, to teach um, life science in, in this middle school. And um, Julie was pregnant with Kim, our, our first, uh, our oldest daughter, when I started that year, so um, because she was already pregnant, you know, that was a pre-existing condition and she wasn't covered. Um, and um, I was making, I think my contract that year was for $6,700. And so um, what we did uh, was our, the local hospital where we lived had this kind of prepay plan. You could pay $400 and... Um, Julie would use the birthing room and the doctor and all that, and, and that would cover the whole thing. And so we did that. We, we planned ahead. We paid the $400. And the t- time came for Kim to be born, and uh, Julie's water had broken, and we take her to the hospital, and they examine her, and they discover that Kim has flipped over, and now she's a footling breach. And so instead of having natural birth, Julie had a, a C-section. Um, so now our $400 was little more than a down payment on a great big hospital bill. Not what we planned. And uh, I'll just let you know, um, God helped us take care of that, and we were, it was funny, I have to tell you this, we went in, they had a financial counselor that we were supposed to sit down with, who was going to help us free up money in our budget so we could pay the hospital. (laughs) And so I told the counselor what I was making, and what our monthly expenses were, and this counselor said, well, you know, you have to add in things for entertainment, and it's like, well, you can put things down for that, but... We don't spend money on those things. And, and uh, so she added up our monthly expenses and looked at my monthly income and had nothing to say to us. Because um, the lines she'd added up far exceeded my monthly income, our monthly income at the time. But God helped us find a way. To get, and that's what we told her, don't worry. We'll pay our bill. Well, not what we planned. And certainly in a tight budget like we were at that time. And, and I think Joshua finds himself in a bit of a place like that. Israel has crossed the Jordan River at flood stage and now they stand on the ground that for 40 years had waited, awaited their arrival. And if you were in Joshua's shoes at this point, okay, you've just crossed the flooded Jordan River. You've already spied out Jericho. If you're in Joshua's shoes, what do you think you would do next? Help me out here. Pray? What? That's what I think I would do. Yeah, Gary? 
Attack! It's time! And, and after all these, uh, uh, it seems like it would be logical to immediately get on with the business of conquering the land that God had promised them, beginning with Jericho. It would seem that that's what they should do, but it wasn't. See, the Israelites are now standing on enemy turf with the Jordan still at flood stage behind them and the fortified city of Jericho before them. And what does God tell Joshua to do at this point? Let's circumcise all the men. What an odd time to reinstate this practice. I mean, it's not a militarily strategic thing to do, considering that all the men, including all those of fighting age, would be incapacitated for a period of time. Seems like a dangerous thing to do, considering their position at this point. Or maybe not. Look at verse 1 that Dean read for us again. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. God had prepared ahead of time for their protection while the men were out of action. Now, it's very possible that the Amorites and Canaanites thought they would not be threatened by the Israelites at least until after the, the Jordan had receded from flood stage. They, they might have been thinking, well, at least we'll have that long. How wrong they were. And when they witnessed or heard what God had done to stop the waters of the Jordan and get His people across on dry ground, any hope they might have had of triumphing over the Israelites left them. You might say that the crossing of the Jordan was for the people of Canaan the straw that broke the camel's back. The final confirmation that the God of the Israelites was too powerful to resist. So, while the Amorites and Canaanites are quaking in fear behind the walls of their cities, God commands Joshua to reinstate or resume the rite of circumcision. And in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Uh, these were knives that were used specifically for this purpose, used only once for this purpose. And uh, it also says, uh, it, uh, circumcise the Israelites again. Now, it's not like, there were probably some who um, at this point had been circumcised already. Um, but the vast majority of the men have not been. So when it says again, it's not speaking about this. If someone had been circumcised already, it didn't have to happen again to them. What it's talking about is those points in history where circumcision had taken place in a, on a broad scale already. And we knew, it had, we knew it had happened in Egypt. If you look at the scriptures, we know it happened at Mount Sinai. So when it says again, it's making reference to again like it's happened before. 
And the right itself was a sign on the body of the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And it was that which distinguished the Israelites from the people of the pagan nations. A mark on the body that set them apart as God's people. It was a difference that the Israelites were certainly aware of. In fact, it, look, look up sometime the words circumcised or circumcision or uncircumcised. You'd be surprised how often it's mentioned in the Bible. The Israelites were keenly aware of this this whole thing that marked and set them aside and the fact that it did differentiate them from the peoples that surrounded them. If you look in the Scriptures, it's made reference to in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, where David, as a shepherd boy, is going to go out and fight Goliath. And Goliath, you know, has been coming out for days and, and, and challenging the armies of Israel. Send somebody out to fight me and it hasn't happened. And he shows up and he can't believe that this giant has defied the armies of the God of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 17, 20, chapter 17, verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He did not have the mark of God on his body. In Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 34, this is a prophecy. Elam is there with all her hordes around her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. All who had spread terror in the land of the living went down uncircumcised to the earth below. They bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. So that was very much on the minds of Israelites as something that set them apart from the uncircumcised, the pagan nations that surrounded them. And, and the performance of the rite of circumcision at this point was a sign to the people that the covenant was renewed. That the covenant was renewed. Remember I referred back to Genesis chapter 17 where God makes His promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you into a nation. And I, I will give you this land to be yours. And the mark of that on Abraham's body and all the men um, who were part of Abraham's entourage at that point was the, the sign of circumcision. Uh, a commentator talking about what's happening with Joshua and the Israelites at this point says this, God did not require the renewal of circumcision, which involved as the covenant sign the observance of the whole law, till He had given His people practical proofs through the help afforded in the defeat of Sion and Og, the king of the Amorites. Remember, that was on the other side of the Jordan. They defeated those kings. In fact, some of the tribes liked that land so much they asked Joshua to be able to stay there and inhabit it. So, he's already defeated Sion and Og, the king of the Amorites, and in the miraculous division of the waters of the Jordan that he that he was able, speaking of God through the acts that he did, that he was able to remove all the obstacles that might lay in the way of the fulfillment of his, pro of his promises to them. All obstacles had been removed. Pretty miraculously when you consider how they crossed the Jordan. 
And now he's going to give them the promised land for their, their inheritance that he had sworn to their fathers. And the commentator goes on to say, God had been proving his willingness to keep his part of the covenant up to this moment when the men of Israel would take the sign of the covenant on their bodies. God had been faithful. Now, if you look at the kind of the center portion of this passage of Scripture today that Dean read through us for us, verses 4 through 8, it speaks of two different generations. It speaks of the Exodus generation. Those of military age, 20 years of age and older, that had left Egypt and rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea. When God had said, go in and possess the land, the spies came back and said, there's giants who live there, fortified cities, we can't do it. And everybody said, you're right. And they turned away. That's the Exodus generation. This also makes reference to what we would call the wilderness generation. Those who had grown up during the 40 years of wandering in the desert. It was in the wilderness generation that God had once again had a people who demonstrated belief in Him and obedience to Him. For them, the rite of circumcision was meaningful because God was regarding them as His own covenant people. A covenant that had been broken by their fathers, but was now being renewed with them because they had obeyed God. Remember, that was, a, that was what the, the, the requirement that God gave Abraham. Here's what I will do, God said. Your job is to obey me. And we know that, that the, the, the previous generation, the Exodus generation, had failed to do that. They had broken the covenant. God said, the land is yours for the taking, go in. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And so now the covenant's been renewed by this wilderness generation that had grown up during that 40 years of wandering and had been obedient to God. And they had now crossed the Jordan. They had gone into the land. And because of that, God is renewing the covenant with them. So this demonstrates Joshua's willingness to take this break and do this, demonstrate that jo- demonstrates that Joshua's concern for good military strategy took second place to God's will. You know, he was aware that this act of circumcision would effectively incapacitate his whole army, probably for some days, right under the noses of their enemies. And there was a history that Joshua could have looked back to and said, you know, God, this is a dangerous thing to do. It's, in, it's recorded in Genesis chapter 34. There's a story there. It's a story of Jacob and his daughter Dinah. And... and Dinah is raped by Shechem, the son of Hamor, a Hivite. And, and Shechem, this, this, this Hivite, wants to marry Dinah. So, so Hamor, his father, goes to Jacob and tries to work out a, a situation where, where he will allow his daughter Dinah to marry this Hivite. And when the sons of Jacob find out about it, they're enraged. Their sister's been violated. They're furious about what's happened. And in verses 13 through 15 of of Genesis chapter 34, we read this. 
Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. Give give Dinah to your son as a wife. We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. The proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. And then you move down to verses 24 through 26. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all the men were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. So, so don't you? Joshua knew about this. He could have been thinking, God, isn't this kind of a dangerous thing? Time to put our men in a position like this? Do you remember what happened back there with Shechem and Hamor? And But he didn't do that. When God said, I want you to reinstate the right of circumcision with this generation, that's what he did. He obeyed. And you know, there's a variance of opinion on the authorship of the book of Joshua. I'm just, we, you know, it's got his name. We're thinking, well, he must have written it. But... Not all the commentators agree that that's exactly what might have happened. But whomever wrote it, even if it was Joshua himself, it was probably written after the fact. Again, back to verse 1. Where it talked about the Amorites and the Canaanites clear along the coast. They weren't anywhere near the coast yet. They just crossed the Jordan. And yet it says all these people were melting in fear. They were afraid to come out again. How could Joshua have known that at this point? In all likelihood, he did not. This, that verse was probably written in retrospect. So Joshua, that was a, a step of faith for him to obey God at this point, probably not knowing what verse 1 is telling us. He didn't have that information. He knew what was happening in Jericho. He knew they were afraid. But he couldn't have known what the Canaanites clear out on the coast were saying and thinking. And yet he trusted God and did what God told him to do. Now there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, this act of circumcision reaffirmed the Israelites as God's people. God's covenant people. And it had a deeper significance than a mere mark on the body that set them apart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and all your soul and live. See, that was the problem with the previous generation, the Exodus generation. Then loved God with all his heart and put their trust completely in Him. And when God said, do this and it looks scary, they said, no, we're not. And they turned around and died in the desert. 
So this was significant not only of a reaffirmation of the covenant, but significant of the removal from their hearts of the willful disobedience that had characterized the generation that had died in the desert. We now have a covenant people because they're an obedient people. And the other thing I see here is this. God sometimes asks us to do things that seem risky and don't make sense at the time. What should our response be? Well, it should be that we trust Him and obey. We can do that because just as with Joshua, God is orchestrating circumstances so that we can do His will. God was way ahead of Joshua here. He caused this incredible fear to come across the entire land of Canaan so that they weren't willing to lift a finger to come after the Israelites. Even, And I'm not sure they knew that they were incapacitated, but it didn't make any difference. They were coming out from behind the walls of those fortified cities. They were scared to death. God had made a way for them to do His will. It was their job to obey. So after the circumcisions were completed, there was a memorial celebration. See, circumcision was a renewal of the covenant, but it was also done as a necessity in preparing the people to celebrate the Passover. Did you know that? Let me read Exodus 12.48 to you. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised, then he, may take, then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. No uncircumcised Israelite, no foreigner who lived among them who was uncircumcised could partake in the Passover meal. So if they were going to celebrate the Passover meal, a prerequisite, prerequisite to that for the men of Israel was circumcision. And then because that had been done, they were now able, through obedience to God, and that mark on their bodies that God had commanded, to partake in the Passover. So it's a time of celebration. That's what it is. It's a time of rejoicing. The shame and disgrace of Egypt have been rolled away. What's that about? Well, we know that they had been slaves in Egypt. That was a shameful thing. And for 40 years, they'd been slaves in the desert of their own disobedience. Now they are freed from the desert, freed from disobedience. Their feet are solidly on the promised land. They had accomplished through faith and obedience what the previous generation had failed to do. And now the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. See, there was this thing that kept coming back to them. The Egyptians are sitting back there and they're laughing at you. You escaped us, but you, you never accomplished what you said you were going to accomplish. It was derision, it was laughter, it was fun-making, it's where's your God? Now that, all of that is rolled away. We've reconfirmed the covenant through our obedience. We've obeyed God and gone across the river. We're now standing, our very feet are on the ground that God has promised us. And we're going to celebrate today the Passover. It was a remembrance 
to the Israelites how God had saved them from the destroyer through the blood of the Lamb. It was a time of thanksgiving for God's protection, His deliverance, His mighty acts on, on their behalf, and specifically for His provision through all those 40 years. God had provided for them when they had not been able to provide for themselves. And so we're celebrating today. By the way, that had to be a bit of a reminder to any Egyptians who might have known what was going on of what happened to them during the Passover too. So that's rolled away. The shame of Egypt, the reproach of Egypt, it's gone. We don't carry that anymore. And then the scripture moves on to tell us The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. And my footnote says, or the day, not the day after, but the day. I guess it depends on how they translate from the original language. But here's the point. The manna was stopping. What's that mean? It means the desert experience is over. The desert experience is over. For 40 years, manna had sustained them. But the day after the Passover, the manna stopped and they ate food from the land on which they now stood. It was a new day. It was a new beginning. Have you ever been through a desert experience in your life? (laughs) didn't take long for that response it was hot it was dry there were times where when you wondered if God was there and yet somehow he provided for you and got you through it and then came the day when there was that breakthrough and the burden was lifted and the joy returned and God seemed close again and you knew you were out of the desert and this was their day You're not in the desert anymore. You don't need manna anymore. In fact, a new blessing awaited. A new blessing awaited them. Now they would enjoy this new blessing. The bounty of the land that God had promised was now theirs. That land of milk and honey. It was a time to reflect and give give thanks to, to God for His goodness to them. In the desert, God provided for them what the land could not produce. Now in the promised land, God would provide for them through what the land could produce. A new blessing. A new kind of blessing. And think about it. They could look back on the wilderness wanderings and reflect on all that God had done for them during that time, how he protected them, how he provided for them miraculously, manna and quail and water out of the rock, and the list goes on and on. Certainly there was much to be thankful for that God had done for them in the desert wandering. And folks, we could take time to, to, today to reflect on our own lives and think, well, what, God, what has God done for us in our journey? We can thank him for his sovereign control over our circumstances. His commitment to us, even when we wander astray. His word that gives us direction. 
His love that holds us close. His gentle compassion in our sorrows. His consistent faithfulness through our highs and lows. And I know the list could go on and on and on. And just like with the people who entered the land and the man has stopped and now they experience a new blessing of a land that would provide for them everything they needed. Very often when we come out of the deserts of our lives, there's a new blessing that awaits us as well. Just as there was for the people of Israel when they land, entered the land and ate of its bounty. It's the reward of faith and obedience. And I don't know what that new blessing might be in your lives. It might be different for every one of us. But the great thing about it is when God takes us through the desert, there's a good reason for it. And He's usually got some lessons He wants us to learn. But when He gets us through that experience, there's a new blessing that awaits us. Just like there was for the people of Israel at this time in their journey. And aren't you glad that God loves us enough to do that? I mean, I know sometimes in the middle of our wilderness wanderings, we don't enjoy it. We don't appreciate it like we should. But God had a re- has a reason for taking the Israelites through the desert. He has a, a reason when He takes us through the desert. But folks, He'll provide for us. He'll get us through. And there's a new blessing waiting for us on the other side. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you today, and I know there's kind of some interesting things in this passage of Scripture today. We go from the circumcision to the Passover to the no more manna. And yet, Father, you were showing your people something and showing us something through each one of those occurrences in their lives. Lord, God's willingness, or excuse me, Joshua's willingness to obey you when you told him, circumcise the men of Israel. I know you're sitting right here and practically under the shadow of Jericho, but circumcise them. That's what I'm telling you to do. Renew the covenant. And so in faith and obedience, maybe not knowing that the condition that existed clear out to the coast, that People were melting in fear and afraid to even come against Israelites. He did what you told him to do. And he trusted you. And you protected them. And then to to celebrate once again the reproach that had... Well, the Passover and the reproach that had been lifted from them. And what you had accomplished through their faith and obedience. They now stood on on the promised land side of a flooded Jericho River. And all that you had promised them awaited them. And when they got there and celebrated the Passover, the manna stopped. But that was okay because you had a new blessing in store for them. Now that the desert experience was over, that hot, dry place, that place was difficult, that place that they never would have gotten through if it hadn't been for your divine providence and provision for them. You had gotten them through that and now this new blessing Awaited. And I know there may be some among us today, Father, that we need to take that step of trust and obedience. We, we need to believe, Father, that you'll get us through that desert experience we might be in and that there's a new blessing waiting for us on the other side. And thank you, Father, that we can trust you in the deserts 
And we can trust you to provide for us. And we can trust you for the blessings beyond that. Because you're good. Because you love us. Because your mercies are new every morning. Because you have promised to take care of us, your people, if we will obey you and move forward in faith. So, Father, may we take away today something from here that we've heard you say to us through this story in the book of Joshua and the way you worked in the people, in your people of Israel. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and how it applies to us right now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we close.